Life Audio. Hey, welcome back to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries, gospel-app.com. We're starting a brand new series on the Song of Songs of Solomon in the Old Testament. You know, look, this is likely a very different take than you've heard before. I think we've been confusing this book for way too long, discouraging the use of this book for way too long. I'll say more about that. Um, I have made my case at at SBL, Society of Biblical Literature, and was well-received. I mean, I I think this is a good way of looking at it. But unfortunately, for the most part, we Christians have kind of felt like it was an embarrassing member of the family. (laughs) And, you know, it's kind of this humiliating view of God pursuing romantically this this uh, this maiden. Oh, my gosh, it it can't that can't be even more off. It's one of the most uh, powerful gospel presentations in the Old Testament. And we're, we're lacking because we've we've missed that so much. So about 15 years ago, I co-authored uh, my first book with Colleen Pepper on the Song of Songs. We called it The Kiss of God. And listen, one of the major publishing house, well-meaningly, they had us under contract for about a year before they decided that our approach was far too dangerous and disturbing for many of their readers. And, you know, I think they were right. And that's too bad. I think we evangelicals and Catholics and uh, other Protestants, I think we... I think we'd really benefit. So listen, come come along with the ride and see if I can convince you. And by the way, you can get The Kiss of God on Amazon. I recommend it to you. I'm in the process of rewriting the book, and at least my uh, initial title is The Kisses of God. And listen, it's going to be dangerous and disturbing too, but I think it's also life-changing for Christians who want to experience more the love of God. We know it's ours, right? Jesus purchased it for us 2,000 years ago, but to experience it, man, that's a horse of a of a different color. All right, love to get your feedback. Bill at gospel-app.com. Before we get into the meat of the uh, first podcast in the series, let me take a break for a word for our sponsors. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Hey, welcome back. I want to lay all my cards on the table at the very beginning. This is about the Song of Songs of Solomon, 117 verses. That's it. It's a collection of ancient prophetic love poems, some clearly sexual. It's relational, and I'm going to say more about that. It's intimate. 
and, and I think that has troubled and excited Christians ever since Jesus said, go into all the world. And truth told, it troubled Jewish theologians long before that. Um, there was apparently some controversy about its inclusion into the 39 books of the Old Testament. One reading through it, I think, will suffice to show why. It flat out embarrasses most modern Christians. <laughs> and I, look, I think that says more about modern Christians and our emotional and spiritual issues than it does the Song of Songs. The biblical Song of Songs is and has always been a unique, very powerful lifeline for increasingly anxious and lonely people here on planet Earth. Okay, let me ask two questions at the very beginning. So first, if God was to invent marriage, what would it look like? If God was to invent marriage, what would it look like? Oh, oh wait, he did invent marriage in his blueprint. Yeah, the song displays in living dynamic color what an ideal, mutually satisfying relationship can and should look like. I mean, some, gonna, uh, some are going to find this provocative, challenging. Some of you will find this a breath of fresh air. You're just kind of jonesing for it. And like I said, others are going to remain aghast as they drink their tea in the, in the dark corners. It just is what it is. You know, there's just so much sex, cried one well-meaning Christian. Not agape, and, and I'm going to say more about that, uh, the eros versus agape debate in a later podcast. I think it's important. Yeah. So, but anyway, check out one person's observation of the song, and you tell me if this is your understanding of agape or not. Quote, the relationship between the man and the woman is, in the first place, a reciprocal relationship, one of mutuality and equal participation. The man relates as a man and the woman as a woman, with each belonging to and desiring the other. Each addresses the other, delights in the others and in his or her love. Their love is expressed in kisses and embraces, sought and delighted in by each one. The man and the woman equally find nourishment in the love of the other. Each takes the initiative and goes out to the other. The man and the woman delight in the attractiveness of the other. Each one claims that the other is beautiful. The man admires the beauty of the woman in a way which points to her distinctive female features. Likewise, the woman admires the man in a way which delights in his maleness. There is no sense of domination of one by the other, no suggestion of priority or of one being the initiator more than the other. There is an equal partnership in this relationship of love. The relationship between the man and the woman in the song then is one where each participates equally and mutually as a man or as a woman toward the other. There is initiative and response by both of the lovers to each other no note of priority or subordination intrudes, except as each is subordinate to the other in love. Yet, there is no blurring of their maleness and femaleness. To do that would be to render this vibrant song bland. That's Robin Payne in uh, the Song of Songs, Song of Woman, Song of Man, Song of God. So cool. I mean, I just absolutely love that. So, was that agape? Or was that your view of Eros? Was that your view of the other loves? Phileo, for instance? Come on, all right? I mean, without putting a label on it, like, but let's just take off the labels. Isn't this what we're longing for?
whether you're married or, or not. Ah, here's another commentator, Falk, Marcia Falk. She says the song offers a thoroughly non-sexist view of heterosexual love. As is apparent in many poems in the song, women speak as assertively as men, initiating action at least as often. So too, men are free to be as gentle, as vulnerable, and even as coy as women. Men and women are similarly praised by each other for their sensuality and beauty throughout the song. It may even turn out that this ancient text has something new to teach us about how to redeem sexuality and love in our fallen world. (laughs) Right? So... Is anybody interested in that kind of love and that kind of relationship? If so, then, you know, here's my bent. Why then isn't the song required reading for young Christian newlyweds? And, you know, even grizzled older couples, and especially singles. And I'm going to say more in another chapter, but so much of modern Christianity, unfortunately, is kind of looks, It's they're embarrassed by the song. It seems body, erotic, of the flesh. And again, I'm going to say a lot more, try to pop that balloon. But because a closer, more objective look for those with ears to hear, I'm telling you, I think it's very timely, sweet music to real people in this world right now with increasing loneliness and isolation and sexuality issues. Tragically, the song has fallen into, I'm going to suggest, practical disrepute, or at least has been uh, narrowly used as a uh, relationship primer. Yeah, it's that, no, no doubt. And yet, boy, it's so much more. We become so distracted by and troubled by the sexual imagery that the glorious headlines buried. The uh, Bible's chief trailhead to a better, uh, more biblical marriage and identities and relationships and sexualities gets hidden in the garden's high mortifying weeds. Look, here's my question to married and singles alike. How's it going for you? Right? I, I, where does this find you, man or woman? Are you s- secretly struggling to be found, appreciated, and adored? Are you wondering if there will be anyone who will see you as lovable? I mean, if any of those questions resonate in your head... The Song of Songs is a must-read. In the character of the young maiden, the queen in the song, you're going to hear the longing and cry of your soul, too, because she gives voice to your ambivalence. You know, am I dark and lovely? Am I attractive or not? Am I smart or not enough? Give voice to to your fears of loneliness and, and even anxieties. She offers her path to you. Right When she says, come to the garden to her beloved, and in the garden of the beloved, there's hope for the lonely, the overlooked, the rejected, the abused, the underloved, the devalued, those who think they're ugly and unlovable. In his eyes, you can begin to find wholeness at last. Check out Song 8, verse 14. So secondly, if God were to sing about the depths of his heart to you, if he was going to write a song about his love for you, and that it doesn't matter if you're married or single, what would the song sound like? Well, if I asked what would it look like, the only correct answer is the life and death of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, right? First John 4, 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, 
But what would it sound like? I'm going to suggest a collection of love songs penned and sung by God himself for me, for you, for people like us. And that would be something, right? All right, let me be more precise and maybe maybe a little more shocking. The rightful, glorious king of all creation loves you so much that he intentionally went and found and incarnated popular, very familiar love ballads sung by generations of actual girls and boys in the villages and tribes scattered from the Tigris and Euphrates River Valley throughout Anatolia, right, modern Turkey, throughout the regions of Judea, all the way down into Egypt and no doubt beyond. See, his choruses, the, the, the songs that he borrowed and incarnate would sound familiar to every young girl and boy, but be far better because they're imbued with the power of the gospel. And the songs not only express true agape for the agape-less, but the agape-less are actually made to feel agape again. They have power because they're gospel, they're they're the Bible, they're God-breathed. So if you think about it, it makes so much sense that God would use an already available popular genre so familiar to regular people on the streets and the villages and the farms alike. And here's why. And there's one reason that I can think of, because he didn't want the message to be missed or absconded by the theologians or the educated elite or just the wealthy educated. Are you with me? See, often it seems like those groups, yeah, maybe despise the clarity and humanity of the message anyway. It seems so, you know, of the dirt, dirty. Now, to be clear, I'm suggesting that God began with mere rough body street ditties, earthy, rhythmic strains that one might have heard in bars by workers of the field, uh, and even even likely by prostitutes as they uh, applied their trade. And by the way, in the last part, I'm not just trying to be, um, you know, provocative. I, I think we'll see that when we take a look at Gomer, that uh, there's actually evidence for that. So what God does with all of that music, that genre, is magical. It's miraculous. And the portrait of love he paints is nothing like anything that's been there before. And yeah, he keeps the sexual imagery. And why not? He created sex. And no doubt he doesn't like what happened to it since the fall. Godly eros, boy, you don't hear those two words going together. Eros is where we get the word erotic. Eros that was there with Adam and Eve before the fall has become so twisted up, so self-focused, and so confused with pornea. So work needs to be done to rescue love and redeem it. Not a problem for this God. He risked being understood like so many lesser lovers have throughout the days of humanity. All right, so here's the point. When God sung these songs in the canon, everybody knew the tune. Everybody knew the imagery, the sexual imagery. Everybody knew the point. God, the king, is speaking his heart to his surprised, fearful, and unlikely bride, right? And who, by the way, had a reputation of looking for gross counterfeits anywhere and everywhere. We'll say more about that. Is it making sense? All right, we need to take another break for another sponsor. Thank you for your patience. I'll see you in a short time. So the Song of Songs is perhaps the clearest and boldest presentation 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ ever penned, and it was in the Old Testament. Unfortunately, I'm going to suggest that it's often the one most overlooked and dismissed. Um, right? So here's, here's a quote from uh, George Knight. Our sacred editor has not just published for his own delight a collection of the love poetry he or she has enjoyed hearing and editing, as we might produce an anthology of verse today. He has not just shaken his poems together like peas in a cup and then offered them to his public in no particular order. He has placed his poems by divine inspiration in such an order that he is able to, step by step, show the meaning of true love. He thus reveals not just the love of a young human couple for each other, but actually, actually the love of the living God. He alone is the source of the love they exhibit, and which they discover to be more powerful, enduring than even death itself. Yeah. In the Great Sex Rescue, authors define great sex, intimacy, eros, I guess, this way. Great sex is the fulfillment of a longing for intimacy, for connection, to be completely and utterly bare in every way before each other. It's also a bearing of our souls, a deep hunger for connection, a longing to be completely consumed by the other, while also bringing intense pleasure to both of you. Now, I love that. You can hear the vulnerability, the mutuality, the longing and finding uh, of the other, the delighting in the other, right? Very selfless. And I hope you agree that that's the goal. I mean, why wouldn't you? What might trouble you, and here I am being provocative, I can hear the siren call of the gospel of Jesus Christ in very similar terms. Listen, my unique relationship with God that Jesus dearly paid for 2,000 years ago is the ultimate fulfillment of my longing for love and intimacy, for connection, body, and soul. It brings me intense pleasure And though it is rarely said, my union with God is one of mutual love, with loving participation by each in giving and receiving, initiative and response, and delight in the self-giving love of the other. Within the very being of God, without any loss of God's divinity or glory at all. There. I mean, I said it. And as we read the Song of Songs, often erotic imagery, again, this, this is a quote from Payne, They need not cause us to squirm. They need not feel inappropriate. Rather, we can feel the force of the depths of the love of God who so longs for us and delights in us. We feel, too, the longing of our hearts and our seeking after God. We're encouraged to hear and respond as male or female, as woman or man. We are made aware of God's delight in and rejoicing over us as we rejoice in God who so rejoices over us. Oh my goodness, wouldn't that shake up the Christianity, our evangelistic message, our relationships, our own sense of identity and worth? Wouldn't it diminish our shame a little bit? Wouldn't we feel less lonely? Look, when we speak of the intimacy between God and his bride, some caveats need to be made. First, from a human perspective, it's not a female versus a male thing. The bride is presented to us in the song as a young woman, but she represents all the women and men who have been brought into the loving embrace of God throughout time. There is equality of need among the sexes to be loved and to experience love for each other, right? Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, particularly related to our 
need for intimacy, for embrace, for being told how beautiful we are and handsome we are, loved. Secondly, we are necessarily changed by the power of, of that love. That's God's love, so different. So when our lover, God, finds us, we're beat up, we're spoiled, we're uh, hungry for love, but we're also afraid of intimacy to some degree or another because nothing has hurt us more than relationships uh, that have gone bad, that have betrayed us, that have been disappointing, um, that have abandoned us. The king's love comes with the power to make any woman or man begin to grasp the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ, right? Ephesians 3, the transformation, uh, necessary transformation wrought by this love, the powerful love of this king, has to be observable. It's obvious it's power from God. Third, from the perspective of God, what does he get out of the union? Well, because in human affairs, both parties get something. Can we say that about the all-sufficient deity? Is he's changed, transformed? Are his needs more satisfied? No. Uh, again, above my pay grade, but these are not concepts that apply to a holy God. Uh, having said that, we can say that he testifies of his delight over his bride. He dances over her, Zephaniah 3. He pursues her because he longs to be with her. He seems to enjoy gazing at her beauty and receiving her love. At one point, he says as he gazes into her eyes, his knees buckle. It affects him. You know, I don't know where that fits into your theology. Oh my goodness, it's it's powerful statement. I, I'm not quite sure what to make of it, but I like hearing it. Again, I don't know how that fits with your concept of God. Maybe... You come from a place where you prefer and are more comfortable with a distant God on a distant throne who contractually must love you, quote unquote, because that's what his son did for you. But, you know, in fact, experientially just seems to be indifferent to you for the most part. <laughs> uh, right? A lot of religion is that way. You may think that you're guarding his holiness by resisting more, by thinking about a pursuing God who embraces, whose knees buckle. But you know what? In fact, you've created a God in your own image. I mean, think about that. And honestly, you're not having fun uh, as much as you could. He is a God who intentionally sings songs of the whore. Why? Because he loves prostitutes. Heaven's going to be filled with redeemed adulterers, manipulators, and addicts. Scandalous, right? That's what God does. He incarnates the songs of the street. Let me put it another way. To communicate his heart to people like us, God is willing to incarnate the crude husk of the world. One of my professors described it. In this case, popular and familiar ancient love songs, some pretty racy, in order to speak to the hearts of the most needy who are singing those songs, who actually like those songs. This is what God does in other literary genres, right? Israel didn't invent proverbs or law or worship hymns. They pre-existed their use in canon. God has, it's what he does. It's part of his DNA. He, he incarnates existing literary forms for his intents and purposes, right? In all cases, his product is far superior to the original. He did the same thing with love songs, and he did it wildly well. 
So listen, are you jazzed? And we're going to pick this up in the next podcast. So, uh, another couple of podcasts of introduction, then we get into the actual verses. Um, I'd like to acknowledge lifeaudio.com for their platform and their support. You can help us get the word out. Make sure you intentionally follow us or subscribe on whatever podcast platforms you use. Share the link with others uh, that you think might, might find this interesting. Pass it on to your church, your Bible study group, Facebook, whatever you got to do. Um, and listen, check out The Kiss of God on Amazon. It's a great read. All right, we'll see you in the next podcast. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard. Take heart, child of God. Is life feeling chaotic? I get it. I'm Rachel Wojo, host of the Untangling Life podcast. Don't miss the passionate encouragement and faith-based resources you need to help you clear your head and calm your heart. As Shell says, it feels like Rachel always knows what I need to hear. She keeps it real and is so humble. Her podcast is just the cherry on top. Enjoy Untangling Life with Rachel Wojo on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast app now.